founder lock himself at home or somewhere they are just working on the technology and they are not doing the validation process like go out there ask your clients do the proper validation of your project of your idea hey thank you for inviting me hello to everyone awesome petra so it's it's really great to have you on and um I just wanted to kind of, you know, having a look at some of the work that you are doing, what markets are currently exciting you at the moment? I've seen one or two posts on LinkedIn around mental health. Is that an area that your fund is looking to participate in? Mental health? Are you sure? <laughs> Uh, now, the, now the situation with the venture capital in general, it's like everyone is trying to slow down a bit uh, with the with the funding going into startups. Also, we are raising a new fund now, and we are planning to we are transferring a family office into a regular VC fund with external investors. And now, while fundraising, we are very cautious. We can also invest, uh, but we are very cautious about what projects uh, we're gonna choose. And what we are going to invest, uh, we are looking uh, into C region, and the region is specific. The, the specificity of the region is like you have a lot of uh, great technical talent here, but we are lacking the operational skills. So yeah, we are looking into technical founders uh, who have their interesting ideas about uh, about tech they can create and. We are not limited by any, uh, you know, area we are looking at. We are not looking into hardware and, and medtech. But apart from that, uh, we are looking, we are agnostic. And we don't have any specific areas where what we're going to choose now, where we're going to invest. We are just being cautious in general, as you can see, as you can hear from all the VCs, like everyone started to do really long uh, due diligence on the projects and everyone is being cautious about the valuations. Is that sort of how you're preparing for this tech winter in a sense? Are you focusing more on assisting your portfolio companies and slowing down newer deals? Yeah, we have a portfolio. When it comes to portfolio companies, our situation is quite specific because, as I mentioned, it was family office before. So we have few companies uh, in a different state of uh, maturity, let's call it, let's put it that way. So we have companies that have like a uh, few million dollars ARR already. Uh, so they are more mature. And when it comes to startups in a seed stage, uh, now we have uh, only two, and we are launching the the precedency investments from the fund we we're gonna set up now. Uh, but when it comes to VC winter, yeah, we are very well aware of that. Uh, also, the, the the investing is more and more. Uh, it's not more and more difficult. It's like, yeah, everyone is just being cautious. Yeah, you know. Do you find that there's quite a a lot of uh, competition in VC at the moment across across Europe. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, uh, in our country or in the C region, the small funds are uh, are being set up. 
uh, and the, the deal flow is like distributed all over different funds, but you still have the top of the tier one tier, tier one funds that has the, the best deal flow in the region. And then you, I, then you see um, other lower quality deal flow being distributed across the different funds. But it's like still your your it's a huge competition when it comes to the top deals. That's true. It's not like in the US, <laughs> but I think the competition is uh, is here, uh, and it's different than it was five years ago. So I, I can tell all the mistakes you can imagine. So I see see those mistakes and can identify can identify them well. Like when I see it in founders doing the same mistake that I did. And my, my, my journey to venture capital was quite interesting because I was like uh, in Czech Republic for many years. I'm from Slovakia. And uh, I was kind of around the VC industry for many, many years. So I already knew projects who were set like uh, 10 years ago who were like okay this is the first one of the first we see funded projects etc etc so i was around for for quite a few time time uh, then i moved to slovakia back back home i set up a startup there uh it was like a robo advisory platform with my colleague uh however when we launched and we did everything you need to do it was like we couldn't agree on the strategy of the company and I decided to to move back to Czech Republic, uh, and I sold my share, my, my stake in the company, and my uh, co-founder is continuing with the business. So I was like, uh, I have experience like to build a product, to build a business, set up a website. So it was a fintech, so do do all the legal work you need to do to have a licenses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And before that, I was working. Um, mainly as a contractor on different jobs. Like uh, I sold one uh, small company, then I was helping on M and A transaction with my friend's company who wanted to sell uh, sell their company. So uh, I have quite very diverse background when it comes to like uh, you know what was my job before. So I think. Uh, it's in Czech Republic. You have like a lot, not a lot of, yeah, many funds that are focused on pre CT. Uh, the reason why we love uh, pre seed and seed is like you, you can see the progress of the founders like uh, each day. So it's it's constantly changing, and I like how it's how it's done. And I think when you approach it with the right, uh, you know, with the right mindset and you can help the founders and you can really make the difference because sometimes uh, um, our motto in the company is like your pre-seed and seed investors really matters because uh, they can either help you to co-create a company or create a company uh, or they can like uh, destroy your company or not destroyed as a very strong word, but uh, they can. Uh, sometimes when you are starting, you need a lot of advice and it depends uh, who is the advisor. So I'll put it that way.
And Petra, you mentioned some fundamental mistakes that founders make. Um, you know, what are some of those common mistakes that you see probably with first time founders and what excites you about working with founders and startups? Yeah, one of the mistakes we still have here in the CEO region is like, uh, as I mentioned, you have a technical founder that is extremely like overexcited about the idea he or she sees. And uh, then he starts building a product. Then he locked in himself, silence. herself, somewhere. In a dark room somewhere, yeah, not yeah, speaking some... to anyone about their idea or potential customers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because the idea is precious. You and know? the technology is revolutionary. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So the technology is uh, revolutionary. The, the idea is precious. And so it, it, I have the experience, it happens like many times that the founder log himself at home or somewhere they are just working on the technology and they are not doing the pure you know the like validation process like go out there ask your clients go to your clients be with them like uh, as long as you need ask as many people as you need do the proper validation of your project of your idea adjust the idea adjust the what you what was your you know product before and what should be your product according to feedback you received so yeah the the process of the how to launch a startup or how to set up a startup here it's still like you're focused on the idea you had and you are not doing the proper validation so so i'm really really focusing because i did the same mistake i wasn't like we didn't do a proper validation but we thought that the market will be quite different and we should have done you know, the interviews with our potential clients, like before we wrote a line of a code. And it's not the case here. We are just writing a lot of code before even talking to one of the potential customers. So that's, uh, that's the biggest mistake the startup are doing. And actually, that's what I like about all the precedent seed investing because it's, you know, it's still changing and it's, it's the process. And as I told before, uh, one advice can help you a lot if the advice is from, from the right person. So, so I'm also um, I'm advising all the founders, like go out there, spend time with your customer. You may find that your customer is not the customer you think you would have. So yeah, just go out there spread the word about your idea and validate it with others then create some mock-ups and go to investors like hey i did this uh i did and i think they will be this is going to be great because 500 people told me they would use the product i always said that second time founders focus more on distribution and first time founders focus more on product i think you know as you kind of get used to that idea of it's, it's almost unlearning that you don't have a lot of control. You can't hold an idea or a product so closely. You know, there's a lot of factors in the market that you don't control and you need to put your product out there to see, you know, maybe on the right track, but what you're trying to solve, you're actually not solving the right problem. And I think when you're more focused about, you know, solving that problem at scale and actually testing your product, you learn that you actually don't have a lot of control over the market or who your customer actually is and the decisions that they make. Are there any other 
interesting mistakes that you that you see um, first-time founders make? Uh, as you mentioned, they are not thinking about the distribution, about the sales. And then uh, they are not thinking uh, properly how to set up uh, relationships between each other, like between the co-founders. That's the problem I, I have, for example. Like uh, you need to have a certain contract, even though you're like two, three co-founders. Uh, I would recommend like to have a contract between yourself and be uh, the contract between founders like what is going to happen if you don't want to continue should be there some vesting should be there I, I don't know what like to set the relationships like because it you know having a business together it's kind of like uh being in a marriage together so it's it's more commitment than a marriage you're spending more time with the co-founder than you are your partner yeah, when you consider, yeah, you are in a, you are sleeping for eight hours, then you are more at home <laughs> yeah, probably. <true. laughs> but uh, <laughs> if you are sleeping, yeah, 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 yeah. If you are not working <laughs> like uh, sixteen hours a day, yeah. So, so I would the the it's very very serious. Like when you are starting company with somebody, it's very very serious. It's like a marriage. So think about. The good times and think about the bad times so that's what i would suggest to founders and also uh i know when you're starting you don't have some time to do a proper uh legal paperwork ip rights etc etc so think about it too and uh, get some mentor that would be also my advice. Like get some mentor from who is uh, like expert in the industry you are in or you want to break into or you're building your startup. Yeah, I, I must say, I really, whenever, you know, a founder kind of talks to me for the first time, I they, they tend to also be quite focused on competition. Um, and and mm -hmm. I, I truly believe that like most startups sort of die out of suffocation more than murder in the sense that you know as you were saying it's about like the team dynamic yeah. is there conflict there between the co-founders maybe they're bringing a, a pre-seed investor that's you know takes quite a often takes a quite a big share in the company but they feel mm -hmm. like they they're not adding as much value as they promised or whatever it is it's, it often comes down to it's really hard to create something new in the world and ultimately you know you are depending on each other and it's other people's lives that you have at stake and you all committing yourself to this idea and you know that that's that's a lot of pressure and if you don't have a good relationship or you're on the same page about yeah. where what the commitment level is that's often where most startups fail is not the runway it's the ambition to keep going because the founders have conflict or they're not on the same page anymore. Yeah, it, it happened to me also. Like uh, we were building a company, then, you know, we got the license, we did everything. And then my co-founder, he just couldn't, you know, switch into the mode like, okay, we're going to sell, we're going to be like 100% dedicated to the company. And he was just, you know, too used to being his own boss and not like work in a company with somebody, like create a strategy and think, uh, work together. 
so so I found out there are just too many problems when it comes to like cooperating with somebody. Yeah. So if you want to like if you're building something, you need to be sure and you need to discuss it before what's going to be your dedication. Like uh, is this a hobby or are, yes. are you going to build a serious business? Uh, because sometimes a lot of people, they have just like idea. Uh, okay, so one day I want to create a company. But with a creating comp company, it's like hell of a responsibility. And I think asking that, like, yeah, are, asking that simple question from the start, what do you want out of this? And what are your expectations? Because mm -hmm. if it's maybe it's just a, a company on the side while I work for another company, and I have a st stable income because I have a family you know, for someone else, it might be they're going in full time, they're sacrificing a lot financially to be in this. And if you're on, you know, different boats, just just asking that simple question from the start can really help, you know, align the incentives. Yeah, yeah. And also create some, you know, um, prospect or two, three year plan. Uh, what should be our plan? Or what's going to be our, our roadmap? Like, uh, what are the you know steps uh, we are going to make in our company or uh, what do we envision like where are where we see uh ourselves in one year where we see ourselves in two years and we have that uh in mind like okay we are two three uh, founders we are going to work together uh do we see it really in two three years and how do you deal with founder conflict? Do you think it's better to get out early or do you think there's certain tactics that you can use to try and resolve the relationship? It depends. It depends. It's like any other relations. It's like any other relationship. Also, you can work on the marriage and sometimes it's not going to work. So, yeah, sometimes you can go to the therapy and it's going to work and sometimes you uh, and nothing will help. So, yeah, it depends on the people. It depends on the nature of the conflict. Yeah, I really love that because also we need to. Yeah, sorry, go for it. So we need to see, you know, case by case. Yeah, I love that because it's that it's, it's about the mindset, you know, if. You can you can change a behavior if you know something if a co-founder is doing something that's kind of not constructive to the overall team dynamic or the strategy that's something you can bring up to them work on it together but if their mindset and their vision is different to yours in terms of what they want out of the company and how much they're willing to put in yeah then that's kind of hard to to work on and i think the better you can be honest with yourself i think that's a mistake that i've made in the past where you're so excited about an idea or a project and it's there's momentum, but you're not being honest with yourself about, you know, who who's along with you on the ride. You're trying to, you know, look at the positives because if you're a founder and you're not optimistic or positive, you know, you're not going to make it very far. So I think just being honest with yourself is really, really important, I've found. Yeah, 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 exactly. And also with the fans, really, you need to know yourself uh like do i think this is gonna work will i be you know happy uh as a founder uh when for example i will quit my job when i was working in a corporate and it's like being a founder and working in a company where it's like 100 people and you are part of something 
and then suddenly you want to switch like being a founder yeah you're you're completely alone and it's very very different and when you are used to being with somebody with a team of, of 100 or yeah just let's say 10 people when you are starting a company you don't have like nine people around you so yeah you're you're just you're just alone with somebody and you need to have a certain you know resilience like uh, to to be able to handle that yeah there's also just that amazing thing of the rawness that comes out of running a company with a co-founder and you know when you are running out of runway and there's no money in the bank and you yourselves don't have an income that you can't get more raw than that in terms of a relationship and you know to see the dynamic when things are bad versus when things are good is like a true understanding of realizing whether you are suited for each other that you know when things do get bad because they will get bad again at different stages you know how you react in that situations and what that synergy looks like back then versus you know when you're hitting your successes is so crucial for for the growth of the team as well yeah 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 exactly but that hap- that happens many times like you are out of money you're working like for no salary and that that's the like life of a startup is like uh, and you need to be able to go through it and and that's why I'm also looking when a company sends me a financial plan and I'm really looking into revenues, like how you see yourself being paid by yourself and what's your revenue when you didn't have any external re- uh, investors, what's your revenue when you have already some investors and whether it's like you have revenue, you have salary, not revenue, you have salary, sorry, salary, I meant salary. You have salary like you are working in a corporate job or you still have a startup salary and you have that mindset, okay, I'm going to have like a low salary, low, uh, yeah, low salary and I'll be working like in a startup or you suddenly switch into the corporate mode like you are being paid 10,000 euros per month because you just suddenly have an investor and I'm yeah I'm I'm also looking at the financial plan. So but, like what's your salary? How how are you thinking about? Petra, how do you how do you look at that though? So you know there's the startup time where you absolutely have no money and you can't pay yourself any salary. Otherwise you know you have to start letting employees go or um, you just can't continue running the operations as is. But then you get the the big round of funding which is going to sustain the company for the next you know six to twelve months. How do you kind of address that? You know, you invest in a company that just started with you. Um, you know, the fund has put in uh, a, a Series A. And how do you look at that and manage that process from, you know, a payout and relationship perspective for, you know, how founders take a salary? Because it shows a lot in terms of how they perceive the company and what the actual purpose of the company is to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think you still need to have like a startup salary. (laughs) And I see it. I see it in many founders. Like when I look at a financial plan, they still don't have the market standard salary, even though they received an investment. 
And as Steve Jobs said, like, stay hungry, stay foolish, and you cannot be hungry when you are paying yourself 10,000 euros like, uh, after pre-seed investments. I think it's exactly that. So it's, that. That's not the right mindset I'm looking for when I, when I invest. I think it's comfort. That's what it comes down to. And, and it's about being honest about, yeah. you know, if you work at a 100-person corporate company and you've got a comfortable salary, maybe that is your zone of happiness as well, that you like structure, you like comfort. There's a guarantee of future security of income and that's fine. But you need to understand that as a founder, each day, each week is uncertain. And there isn't that base level of comfort that a nice corporate salary gives you. I mean, you know, coming from my perspective, where I've never had a, a nice corporate salary. I, I don't know the other end of the table, but I, I can tell I can tell you that the startup salary definitely does keep you hungry. <laughs> Actually hungry. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays we have we have enough money on the market, but yeah, yeah, I think you need to if you want to build your startup and if you really want to build something uh, like having corporate perks and corporate salary, it's not the way you're going to get there because it's, yeah, the comfort ruins everything from my, from my perspective. It's like you need to still, you know, grind and go to work every day. And when you will be like, okay, I have uh, 2 million euros of funding, then I will receive another 5 million. Mm. Yeah, maybe it will. But uh, yeah, you still need to, you know, work hard. One of my one that. of my favorite blog posts of all time is called Desperation Induced Focus. And it's about the concept that every big company was once you, a startup that was so desperate to solve a problem for a customer, they'd do anything for their customer. You know, they were trying to grow one step at a time and they had that desperation induced focus that allowed them to focus on the one thing and do that really, really well and execute fast. And each, the irony is that each startup is trying to become like the big company that is slow, that has processes, that was once hungry and had that desperation induced focus, but now it doesn't because mm -hmm. they have the big customers and they have the thousands of employees. And I think... That mindset is the most important thing is, is having that desperation because it allows you to cut out every single distraction and there's plenty of them. The unimportant things. Yeah. And I, I do think though that a base level salary so that you're not worried about where the next meal is going to come will help create a baseline of like, you need to be creative, comfortable enough to be creative is how I like to think about it. Um, but you know, I don't like it when founders are trying to raise a big round to to pay for you know a salary or a big office i just don't think that that's the right way of looking at it and it needs to be if you're raising a round it's because you believe that you can have a massive outcome and a big exit and it's and it's worth it's vc investable in the sense that the mission that you're on requires capital allocation um, and you're not just doing it to like pay yourself a, a big salary yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think big rounds are needed when you have uh, like product market fit. And then you can scale, uh, buy expensive, you know, salesmen and everything. But till, till the product market fit, it's, yeah, you need to go to office every day and work really hard. Yeah. 
And uh, Petra, you know, we uh, founders ourselves uh, obsessed about startups in the VC world, which means by the time we have our first coffee in the morning, we've got five startup ideas locked in our head. Um, and that's great. We uh, we always do this on our interviews with the VCs, is that um, we give you a, uh, a fictitious amount to invest in the companies that myself and Mark will pitch you in the next thirty seconds. And okay. these ideas themselves are not real ideas. Your fictitious money will never be invested into these companies, nor will these companies launch. Uh, being very pessimistic, pe- very pessimistic about it. Um, but uh, Mark will start with his pitch, and then I'll jump into mine. And you have a hundred k in euros to invest in these two companies, and it's completely up to you as to how you delegate that money. Okay, so idea number one. So we know what SaaS is, software as a service. This is deal-making as a service or negotiation as a service. So this isn't a lot of software, a lot of tech to build, but it's allowing someone to negotiate deals on your behalf. If you've got a, a lease agreement for a property you're trying to rent, if you've got big subscription um, contracts that you have to pay, what if you could just CC someone into those emails where they could ask the right questions and spend enough time to help negotiate deals for you? You know, a lot of these, a lot of these big, you know, we'll often, you know, not focus on the massive events in our life, like trying to buy a house or the rent. We mm-hmm. often don't actually spend enough time on our biggest expenses um, to negotiate or to ask enough questions because we kind of, I feel like we're intimidated by it and you're not going to pay a lawyer. But what if you had someone that was just focused on the deal that could go back and forth um, and basically, you know, like a, a mini deal maker for you. Um, and that's that's version one. And then version two is mm-hmm. what if you had that for every single startup founder? So if you're a Hollywood actor and, you know, you have or professional athlete or footballer, um, you know, like Cristiano Ronaldo's biggest asset is his agent. And that agent helps facilitate deals and contract negotiations. You know, founders more than anyone enter the wilderness of fundraising and they, you know, they'll jump at any term sheet they find. Um, and exactly what you said about a mentor. But what if a founder, like a professional athlete, had an agent that could help them with term sheet negotiations? you know, help them with the communication with VCs, um, you know, almost like a, Holly, a Hollywood agent, but for founders. That's that's phase two. That's the idea. Okay, Petra, this is, don't, don't make a decision. And I need to invest, yeah. <laughs> don't make a decision just yet. <laughs> okay, okay. This is uh, idea two. Um, Petra, do you care about the environment? Yes. Is it a big, of course. Is it a big focus of yours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really into microplastics. Okay. Yeah. So, so. Um, so we need to so, care about the environment, so we don't have like microplastics everywhere. I think microplastics so uh, in the next ten years is going to be like viewed as smoking. I think that's how bad it is for for hormones and. Everything. But anyway, go for it, Cam. Yeah. So. You know, there's two types of people in the world. There's the ones that, you know, care for the environment and there's the ones that say they care but actually don't do anything about it. And the ones that do things about the environment 
are making up for the lack of what other people don't. And, you know, when you go past the various recycling sections in different warehousing plots, you know, behind most supermarkets, you have your recycling bins where everyone's, you know, parking their car outside there and they're trying to allocate cardboard versus steel versus plastic versus um, all the different materials that they have to put away. And that's just one type of you being a good Samaritan. Um, you know, another thing is saving water or saving electricity and all these different things that you're doing with no reward other than self-satisfaction or the ability that you can see a sustainable future. But, you know, there's no incentive driving the actual work that you're doing. So you build out an app that basically has good Samaritan tasks that you can complete. And by completing these tasks, you get rewarded in subsidized uh, government um, legislation pieces. So, you know, uh, moving down to a lower tax bracket, uh, any parking fines or speeding fines that you get done, get discounted based on the amount of points that you're accumulating for your Good Samaritan tasks that you complete. And you end up getting a Good Samaritan score. And according to that score, you uh, sit in a certain bracket where you can redeem these uh, rewards. Obviously, not completely away from, you know, if someone's going to get arrested, you aren't going to get out of jail. That's not that's not the purpose yet. But it is going to subsidize it in order to, to incentivize this. Okay. But you can incentivize it, uh, you know, with some governmental efforts. Like, okay, you need to pay for your plastic bottles and everything and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. So these are these two ideas I should like allocate the investment yeah. to. Yeah. Wow. And I would just like to say one thing before you make a decision. I just mm -hmm. don't see a, a path to revenue with the consumer-based model of a Good Samaritan. I think the intentions are great. The incentive scoring system, I think, is innovative. But I don't see a revenue path. Yeah, that, that, that's, I, that's my I just like, I'd just like to jump in and just a very small thing. Um, I just don't see the scalability in terms of deal-making, you know, how you're going to get people that are industry experts for the various numbers of industries where deals are happening and trying to scale that. I just don't see the opportunity, but Petra, I'm not asking for a lot. I'm looking for a hundred K in terms of euros for 2% of my company. For 2%. Wow, 2%. Right, you really killed that pitch then. <laughs> okay. Okay. And do I need to invest yeah. in either of yeah. these two ideas? Absolutely not. So, guys, uh, even though I'm, you know, pre-semester, I'm not sure about the negotiating, negotiate, negotiating platform. Uh, yeah, service like that would help, but the scalability is very, very questionable. And all about the consumer, uh, I would I would call it recycling platform. Yes. Let's call it what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we just need to force somehow people to do more and to care more about the environment, and it's. Uh, it should be a governmental responsibility. So, yeah. So I wouldn't invest in any of these two. Smart. I'm sorry. 
Small, small talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that I would have got you with the two percent, but uh, that would have really pushed you over. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> but you have many. You told me you have many startup ideas, so you can yeah, this continue. <laughs> and we will we will find something that will be uh, that will be okay. I think. Thank you for putting us down easy. So appreciate that. <laughs> no, that, was, that wasn't my intention. <laughs> um, Pedro, then we just always like to finish off with a very small game um, called Marry, Kill, or Invest. Um, we give you three startup ideas, and you have to choose which ones you would uh, decide to marry, kill, and invest. Marry being you'd be part of the company for the long term. Uh, kill, you would close the company tomorrow. Uh, and invest, you'd put your own capital into it. Uh, to hopefully get the highest returns. Um, today in this episode, we have three companies. The one is Revolut. The second is Klarna. Mm -hmm. And the third is Gymshark. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I have three... Mm, okay, invest, Revolut. Um, and then I have kill, and what was the third option? Gymshark. Uh, but, okay, mm. so I have Klarna. You can invest, Gymshark. marry, or kill. So I guess marry would be a, a stock that you wouldn't want to sell for 20 years. Yeah, so it's, it's difficult. I wouldn't own Gymshark, neither, neither Kalana nor Gymshark, so... Kill both. Uh, so I will kill both. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, amazing. Well, Pedro, awesome. thank you so much for your time. This has been a epic recording, and I really appreciate uh, the honesty and the rawness of uh, our sort of conversational time we've had here. Um, and if there's any possibility that you'd look at investing in our recycle app, we can send uh, over yeah. a pitch deck for that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but yeah, we really appreciate your time. And um, yeah, I'm sure all the listeners will enjoy this as well. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs>